text and then um, our teaching text today that Gordy is going to be uh, preaching on. Then I'll pray for him and then we'll get going. Cool? All right. So we're looking at Galatians 3, um, 23 to 29. So starting in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are an Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again that we have the honor um, to gather, uh, to worship you, uh, to hang out with each other, to show your love, um, that we are all equal in front of you to each other. And so I pray um, that you'll really guide guide Gordy's words as uh, he teaches us today and let us hear what you have to say in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. We've already had a very full morning, so I'm going to try to be sensitive to that and move us towards communion as quickly as possible, but not without rushing it, because this is an unbelievably radical revolutionary text that we've just read, and we don't want to rush it. In fact, I think it's almost the centerpiece of Paul's whole letter to the Galatians. And so let's... Uh, first of all, begin with um, a familiar story. And the reason why it's familiar is because it's a story in the Gospels. So most of us, if we're familiar with the Gospels, will have heard it. But I found it a profound introduction to today's message. Uh, A few weeks ago, some of you will remember I asked you to think of a time when you felt excluded in your life or depreciated or dismissed relationally and emotionally. Uh, And then to think of a time in contrast when you felt the reverse, when you felt valued and welcomed and embraced in your life. And the story I want to talk about today is a story about seeming exclusion, but what's really crazy about it is, is It's a story in the Gospels that theologians to this day still haven't figured out. Um, It's the story where Jesus, for once in his life, doesn't seem to be in the narrative of embrace, but he actually seems to side with the bad guys. He sides with the religious and racial bigots and the Archie Bunkers of the world. And it's the story about when Jesus was trying to get away. Do you remember this one? He was trying to get away on a retreat. They're very tired. And there's this area north of Galilee. Now, you have to remember that Galilee in the Gospels is called Galilee of the Gentiles. In fact, Isaiah called it that. And it's quoted by Matthew. But they went north of Galilee to an area uh, uh, called Tyre and Sidon, or Syrophoenicia. It was an area... Very Gentile, very few Jews. Jews would have been a minority there. But they li- Jesus liked to go where Gentiles were because, same reason I like to go for a holiday to Asia or Switzerland. Nobody speaks English, so I don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> anybody ever experienced that? It's, it's such a break, isn't it? I go to Switzerland, nobody speaks English. I go, hallelujah, no issues. 
no counseling. This is great. <laughs> Unless I have the gift of interpretation. But um, Jesus went to this place to get a break. They're tired. They're worn out. And just when they think they're going to have a break, this woman interrupts the retreat. A Gentile woman, desperate. Her daughter is tormented by a demon spirit and is suffering terribly emotionally, mentally, and probably physically as well. And this woman has three things going against her. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's Gentile. And three, she crashes the retreat, and she's not very Canadian about it. She's not polite. She doesn't say, excuse me, or I'm sorry, or thank you. She just cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and is suffering terribly. So these three things against her, it gets worse, not better. First thing it says is Jesus ignores her. Have you ever been ignored? Have you ever said something and you realize that people deliberately don't acknowledge you? They don't acknowledge what you said. So already Jesus seems to be siding with the story of exclusion here. The second thing is after he's, you know, I was told, told when growing up it was polite, when you speak when spoken to, right? Jesus doesn't speak when spoken to. And then the disciples, they thought, well, Jesus, he's pretty compassionate. He'll probably heal her and get her out. But he, he ignores her, so she keeps wailing. How many know it's not very relaxing to have a distraught mother wailing at you on your retreat? All right? So they're saying, Jesus, if you're not going to heal her, get her out of here. Send her away. And then Jesus says, I'm, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Another put down. You're excluded. She's a Gentile. And she comes and she bows down in desperation. You'd think by then she'd stomp off in a, in a fuss. But she, she comes and she kneels before him and she says, Lord, help me. Help. Just this cry. And then the, the kicker. Here's the kicker. Um, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. He called her a dog. What's going on here? And then she says, yeah, Lord, that's true. But even the children or even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And then all of a sudden, everything turns. And the, and the Lord turns to her and, and the seeming exclusion turns to embrace. And he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. And by the way, he never said that about anybody else in the Gospels except... The centurion who was a Gentile. He never said it about his disciples. He never said it about the Jews. But two Gentiles in the Gospels get that kudo. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, for even the dogs eat. He, Jesus was so, he was just so excited. So we all breathe this sigh of relief because it all ends well. Right? But it still doesn't answer the question, what was going on on the way? Why was Jesus so rude and dismissive to start? 
Well, I like cliffhangers. Oh, actually, I don't. I hate these television shows where it's always continued next time. Because with a pastor's schedule, you don't get it next time, right? <laughs> That's what happens. And I don't have a PVR. I've just got one of these old school things. And so, uh, so I don't like cliffhangers that way. But I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. But we're going to finish it off at the end of the sermon. All right? So I'm going to leave you hanging there. What was going on? Why was Jesus so rude and dismissive? And move into our text. Because this, this relates very much to our text. To the issue at hand. The issue at hand is that the audience of Paul's letter here in Galatia are suffering from the misuse of scripture and tradition. How many have ever been in a situation where scripture was misused to bang you over the head? How many ever were in a situation where scripture was misused by you to bang yourself over the head? How many know the devil used scripture on Jesus and tried to get him to, to distrust the faithfulness of God? I call this the fine print. Our wonderful son, Christian, arrived in Calgary, or from Calgary on Thursday morning. So I got up very early in the morning to go pick him up. And then he, we put him on a plane last night around midnight to go to uh, the Philippines. So... Uh, I take no responsibility for what comes out of my mouth this morning. <laughs> but uh, all through the three days, I was trying to help him get ready for There was some <clears throat> fine-tuning that he needed to do for his trip. And one of the things was, it'd be nice to have some health insurance, especially if you're going scuba diving in the Philippines. So we're trying to figure out how to get him health insurance. And so I found through BCAA and AMA, some of these AAA companies, there's, there's, there's health insurance, but I kept hearing in my mind, check the fine print, check the fine print, and I found out this one policy I'd been checking out, they don't cover scuba diving. So finally we did the work, and, 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 and I'd, I'd heard horror stories of people that have gone from Canada to different parts of the world, and assuming they had health insurance, but they hadn't read the fine print. And there was a bunch of people who were coming to Galatia and they were saying, you know, all this is good news. You got the Holy Spirit, you Gentiles. So far you haven't had to be circumcised and keep the Torah. But you haven't read the fine print. It's really good. God used all this gracious stuff to get your attention. But if you're really going to be the people of God and really live according to God's ways, then you need to keep the rules. Read the fine print. And they were using scripture. How many know there's a lot of scripture? We read some this morning that talks about how good it is to keep the law. To obey the law. There's lots of scripture I could use on you to keep you under law if I wanted to. So I want to talk a little bit. How many know scripture has been misused a little bit in history? How many know that scripture was used to persecute a guy who dared to say that the son doesn't revolve around the earth. That the earth revolves around the sun. Scripture was used to persecute Galileo and others. Uh, scripture has been used to oppress women. And still is to this day. Scripture has and is used to justify racism. Uh, scripture has been used to justify slavery. William Wilberforce, some of the greatest opposition that he had to 
the abolition movement were people who would say, well, the Bible doesn't say abolish slavery. The Bible seems to excuse slavery and condone it. And it does. The Bible has been used to exclude divorcees from membership in the church and from leadership. The Bible has been used to justify residential schools. It's been used to justify the, the oppression of Palestinians by Israel. Did you know there are more Christians in Palestine than there are in Israel? And there are Christian pastors. I have friends who've gone into the Palestinian territory. There are Christian pastors trying to shepherd their sheep and pastor their people. And the greatest suffering they've experienced is from Christians in the West who justify blind oppression of the Palestinian territory. I'm not saying either side is right or wrong. There's obviously issues in two sides of the story, but often we have a blindness in our approach to Scripture. Yesterday I read how Scripture is being used to oppress homosexuals in Uganda. That uh, There's a young man that was kicked out of his home by his mother and by his sister because of this new law in Uganda that... uh, It was going to be capital punishment. Now it's life imprisonment if you're gay. And scripture is used to to support that. So it's very important if we're going to be the people of God that we know how to interpret scripture. Because if you say, well, it's it's just the plain reading of scripture, then why do you have 30 different interpretations as to what different passages say? So there's three, there's, there's three things we need to add to Scripture for us to be able to use wisdom in the applying of Scripture. And we're going to see how Paul does this in, his, in this reading today because he's, he's actually refuting people who have been using Scripture badly and wrongly and, and not uh, in alignment with the character of God. So we believe that wisdom comes through Scripture. We value the Scriptures. They're the most important documents that we hold as people of God. But we know that along with Scripture, and I thank the Anglicans for this, Nadine, but uh, they they have what they call the Anglican quadrilateral, quadrilateral, where they add three more things. Number one, tradition. Secondly, experience. And thirdly, reason. So along with scripture is tradition. What is tradition? Tradition is the conversations that people that have gone before us have had about scripture and what we learn from them. And so we are dwarves on the shoulders of giants for those who've gone before us. But how many know scripture, tradition can go wrong too? And it went wrong in Jesus' day. And it went wrong in Paul's day. And it's sometimes gone wrong in our day. So even tradition has to have discernment and so experience is important so the the jews assumed that when the gospel came that jesus was a jewish messiah therefore if you were a gentile you had to become jewish to follow the jewish messiah but all of a sudden remember that experience that cornelius had where peter went to his house the holy spirit was outpoured they went whoa and they had to go back and look at scripture again they had to revisit Things. And, and the same thing with the abolition of the slave trade. For hundreds of years they justified slavery. Thousands of years they justified slavery. But the Holy Spirit began to do things and they had to go back and they had to look at it again. And reason is important where we reflect. 
And so there's, this is what Paul is doing in this particular passage of Scripture where he has this classic refutation of this rationale that uh, people were making that the law is good and it needs to be upheld and it needs to be kept. And he's addressing Gentiles primarily, but you've got to remember that in his audience there were Jews who were holding tightly to their Torah and they were were seeking to impose that law on, on other people in that audience. So he first of all gives a history lesson and this is what we've been covering over the last couple of weeks where Paul reminds them That Abraham, who was everybody's hero here, started out as a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. The father of their faith was a Gentile. Called from somewhere in the region of Iraq. He heard the voice of God, obeyed God. And 430 years before the Torah was given on the mountain, Abraham walked by faith. God considered him righteous without having to get circumcised. Circumcised, He didn't even get circumcised for years after that. And then there was no Torah for 430 years. So, so Abraham, a- Abraham's story reminds them that it came by grace. And so all the Jewish people are listening to that and they're going, yes, we agree, Paul, but 430 years later, God gave the law. So why would God introduce the law and now change his mind? Is God fickle? Is he unreliable? Is he indecisive? So it is at this point that Paul uses reason. And he uses experience. And he argues his point. And I want you to follow carefully how Paul argues with people who are using scripture to try to put other people in bondage. The first metaphor that Paul uses is the metaphor of protective custody. Now, a few weeks ago, um, I was uh, taking care of the preschoolers. And near the end of the class, I was having a little interaction time with Pax. And Pax, because we, I kind of had to fill in last minute uh, the lesson because uh, I only found out the night before that the worker couldn't come. So... There was no time to prepare one of Matt's incredible lessons that he makes available online. And so I had to innovate and improvise. And so Pax and I were playing a game and he put me in jail. (laughs) And he said, you're in jail and you have a little ringer here. And he said, if you need anything, you ring that buzzer and we'll bring you whatever you need. So I'm sitting there in jail and it was kind of the time the parents were already starting to come back from upstairs and... So I rang the buzzer and I said, I'd like a filet mignon steak, please, dinner. So he ran and got me, a, you know, the, brought it to me and I'm just enjoying it. And, I, and he goes away. So I ring the buzzer again and he says, yes, sir. And I said, I would like a flat screen TV, please, and some video games and some good movies. And away he went and brought me back. And I said to him, I like this jail. This is a good jail. I think I'll stay here. Because the parents, now they were starting to clean up and, and do the work. And I thought, you know, I can't help. I'm in jail. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I kind of saw it as uh, protective custody. And, uh, 
And uh, that's kind of what the kind of jail that Paul is talking about, because they're saying, well, why would God introduce the law? So Paul says before the coming of this faith, and by the way, that word faith, you could, you could uh, uh, substitute faithful one or faithfulness. Before the coming of this faithfulness or faithful one, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So Paul is agreeing with them there. And he's saying, yes, the law is good, but it was a temporary measure. It was, it was uh, protective custody. It was, what is protective custody? We hear, we hear that term in the prison system. What is it? It's, be, it's being protected from the other inmates, right? And, and so there's some other inmates in there called sin, called your own self-centeredness and habits and patterns that the law protects you from. And Paul himself experienced protective custody. He was once arrested just to save his life. Remember that? I remember one time a family at, uh, visited our church in Calgary and they were kind of a mystery family. They came from eastern Canada. There was a husband, a wife, and several kids. and They were always had this aura of mystery around them. I could never quite figure them out. And after about a year or so, they disappeared again. And I found out after they left that they were not who they said they were. They were not, the names they had were not their names. They were in a witness protection program and had spent that whole year with us as a church. Protective custody. That's what Paul's talking about. Garrisoned. And so the, the law was a confining, restrictive, and exclusive uh, system. They had to wear certain kind of clothes. They had to eat certain kind of food. They had to wear certain kind of hair. It was male-centered. Only males could be priests. You had to be basically perfect. No zits. No handicaps. It was based on separation and exclusion, not inclusion and embrace. And yet it was important for a season. So this kind of restraint, Paul says, was protective custody. But why? Well, he introduces now another metaphor called the guardian. And he writes, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. That this, again, faithfulness or faithful one has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Now, Paul's audience would understand this term guardian. We don't understand it in our day. So let me quickly explain what a guardian was. The Greek word is pedagogos, the word teacher. And it was a very familiar picture in the Greco-Roman world for children who were from upper class families, specifically males. Usually it was the firstborn, the one who was destined to be the heir of a, of a wealthy aristocratic father. And they were placed in the custody of a high-class slave, basically. The guardian was a slave, but quite intelligent, quite well-mannered. And basically the child was almost put under 24-hour supervision with this, with this guardian... And the child could not even leave the house without this guardian. 
The, the guardian was responsible to take him to school, make sure that he got there, make sure he didn't play hooky, make sure he didn't go to 7-Eleven or shoot pool, get him to school, and then kind of just supervise his schooling. He wasn't the teacher himself. And often this guardian was very strict. He was severe. He taught manners, taught the, the boy how to be civilized. And um, interesting thing that the father was always regarded as, an, as usually nicer and more gentle and more friendly and kind than the guardian, but the father was distant. The child couldn't really get to know the father face to face and spend a lot of time with the father. He was usually with this guardian. And so he was being trained to be the heir. And so they were literally the keepers of the childhood. That's what these guys were. Keepers of the childhood. Now you think about that with the law. The law, Paul said, was a keeper of our childhood. It was a keeper of the time that we were not ready for grace. We were not ready for the freedom that comes to be full-grown, mature heirs. The law literally included the toys of childhood. What do children have? What are toys? They have Lego and Fisher-Price. What do children's toys do? There's a beautiful... If you, this is why it's really important to do preschool ministry. You learn so much. You go downstairs, there's this incredible kitchen unit. There's a stove and, you know, uh, cooking units and, and shelving and, and, and pots and pans... But it's a big toy thing. Uh, and Paul says that's what the law was. What was the Old Testament temple? What was the ark? What were all those animal sacrifices? What are toys? Toys symbolize reality. They prepare kids for what is going to be real later on in their life. And Paul, he likens the law, the temple, the sacrifices. He says that's just toys. The real has now come. So you don't need the toys anymore. So when Christ the faithful one came, everything changed. They were no longer under a guardian. They now have the real thing. So what happens then when this faith arrives? He describes it this way. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, I have to tell you, that this word children in the NIV is probably not a great translation. But because they want to be gender inclusive, they said children. But actually, this word children is the Greek word huos. If it was to be children, there's a Greek word technon, which means little children. But the Greek word here is huos, which means mature son, the firstborn heir who's now come to maturity, who's now no longer under a guardian, but has now become a partner with the father. He's now become a, a business partner and a friend with the Father. That is the word. But what's amazing about this passage, it says you are all kuas. It's not about gender here, it's about privilege. It's about maturity. It's about coming to a place of responsibility. And so it was the time when a son, not just any son, but the heir who'd been under a guardian, was now ushered into friendship with the father, a direct relationship, and all of the father's property became theirs. 
He was now a partner with his father, a business partner. And when Paul says, you are all sons of God, which is the literal rendering thereof, he's all, he, he literally is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What Jesus, the Son of God, is with the Father, you are all that. The only difference is that Jesus himself is God and has existed eternally with the Father. And so he's invited us to partner with him. Once in a while as a pastor, I get an invitation from churches. And they say, we are putting on this great event and we'd like you to partner with us. You ever get those done? But I find out very quickly what partnering means. It means something they're doing. They're having all the input. They're doing all the planning. And my part is to, is to fill seats with our people and to give them money. That's partnership. And I usually go, no thank you. Right? That's not partnership. What God invites us to in a partnership is where we have say. Where we have input. Where we engage with him. And we do the business with him. The family business with him. And so... Paul goes on to say, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So number one, not only are all of us, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free, now mature huas, children who, who have inherited the Father's inheritance and are co-partners with him, business partners and friends with him, but the initiation is now gender inclusive and race inclusive. It's not dependent on a male circumcision. This was so radical back then. Because you, you, circumcision was very gender specific and race specific. But baptism was initiation that was available to everybody. And I mean everybody. I remember one time we were having this baptismal service down at Brighton Beach. And I don't know if you guys were, any of you were there, but the, the curtain, current was really bad that day. And I was afraid when we baptized people, we were going to actually lose people. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I, I call it no backslider baptism. <laughs> and I remember somebody's shoe went down the, it was gone. And we had this one lady who had fibromyalgia, and she was so fragile. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to put, we had the big guy. Remember Ross? It was the same where, where Ross got baptized. We brought her, and we had this lady, and she was so fragile. I thought, we're going to lose her. So you know what we did? We took a little cup of water, and we just dumped it on her head. I became an Anglican <laughs> or a Catholic. But that's the beauty of baptism. It's, it's, it's inclusive. It doesn't matter that's why, it, that's why the church adopted the practice of baptizing babies. They realized if they, they did the immersion thing, they might drown the baby. So they just sprinkle and then confirm them later. So no matter what your tradition, it's just radically inclusive. It represents God's radical embrace. And then Paul said, you have clothed yourself with Christ. The literal Greek is you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well that word, John Christentum, Christensen, who was an early church uh, theologian, said that that phrase, putting on one another, was actually a phrase of, of friendship. It's, it's, it's like you're, you shape each other. 
You, you form each other. And that's what Jesus says. You shape me and I shape you. We're in this together. We're partnering. This is a business relationship, but it's a friendship. We're, we're running the family business together. And then this radical verse. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor... Actually, let me read that again. Listen, listen carefully to the... Um, is it the conjunctions? Listen. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's happened? What happened before the fall? When God said, let's create humanity in our image. Male and female. Let them co-rule. Let them rule over the earth and have dominion. But what happened at the fall? Patriarchy. Oppression. Slavery. Racism. We turned on God. We turned against ourselves. We turned against one another. But through the gospel, those walls are torn down again. If you belong to Christ, then you are all Abraham's seed. You all are Hewas. You all have the inheritance of the Father. You're all invited into the family business. And it just blows out of the water, this caste system. And this common Jewish prayer that Jewish men prided themselves, they would say this. Blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the world, that he hath made me an Israelite. Blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the world, that he hath not made me a Gentile. Every Jewish man prayed this prayer. Blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the world, that he hath not made me a servant. And blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the world, that he hath not made me a woman. Paul blows that out of the water by telling us the good news of God's radical embrace. Restoring what was lost at the fall back to what was originally intended. If children, he said in Romans, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Instead of exclusion, there's now embrace. So, let's go back to our story. I left you hanging. Remember that Gentile? Remember she had all those things against her? She's Gentile. She's a woman. Jesus ignores her. I have a feeling, and many people believe this is true, that Jesus had gone into pretend mode. You don't see, you don't see the body language. You don't see what's going on. But Jesus because of his insight, knew what was in people's hearts. And we know in the book of Matthew itself, he had already healed a Gentile, Cornelius. In the book of Matthew, in, in chapter 4, it says that he deliberately went to Galilee of the Gentiles, and many of the Gentiles came to him and were healed. 
So this story is way beyond that. It's way later than that. Remember when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth and he said, you know what? Elijah went to the Jews and they didn't accept him, so he went to the Gentiles. Elisha, remember Elisha? He went to the Jews and he didn't find anybody except a widow right in the same territory where this woman was. So something's up here. He's playing a little game. It's a teachable moment where he... He, he first of all ignores her, but he sees, the, he sees the heart and the spirit of this woman, and he knows the disciples are still living this narrative of exclusion. They're still living this narrative of to the Jews only. And so he pretends, and he wants to argue with her. So finally, he, after he's ignored her, and after there's been this little exchange of the disciples sending her away, and he says, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he finally gets, in, gets into that argument. And there's this, there's this banter going on. This banter going on. And finally he says, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Nod, nod, wink, wink. Remember, remember where Bugs Bunny, I love Bugs Bunny. He was my favorite. He just, he was so chill. He just never panicked, you know. He's sitting there chewing on a carrot. Yeah, what's up, doc? I grew up with this. This is my theology background. And Elmer Fudd comes by and he says, hey. And he says, yeah, what's up, doc? And Elmer says, I'm hunting rabbits. Shh. You know, and he's chewing away, right? And it's kind of that kind of scenario where Jesus is, 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 is kind of just chilling. And, and he was like that so often. And he engages this woman in this argument. And finally, when she c comes up with that insight, yeah, but even the, even the dogs get, get the crumbs. He's just all over that. Woohoo! She gets it! Oh, woman, you have great faith. Greater than any Israelite greater than any, any of these disciples of mine. Your faith is amazing. What's going on here? We have a God who loves to enter debates with us. He loves to argue with us. And he loves to lose. Remember Abraham? When the Lord said he was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and, and there's this, well, Lord, what if there's 50 in the city? How about 40? How about 30? What about Jacob when he got in that wrestling match with God? You know what God named him to? Change his name from cheater to one who wrestles with God and wins. There's something about the partnership where God has invited you and I to not just do what we're told. Not just follow a list of rules. He wants our hearts. That's maturity. It takes time. It's often messy. Because we're working out what does the gospel story mean for our time. And that's why Wilberforce finally had to say, you know what? I see all these scriptures in the Bible that support slavery, but it's not true to the story. It's not true to this voice. This, 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 the voice that we're hearing through this verse, there's neither male nor female, slave or free, Gentile or Jew, 
but we are one in Christ Jesus. So, maybe we can go get the kids. We're going to celebrate communion together. So the invitation of God's radical embrace to us today is to come out from slavery and categories into friendship and partnership. And just while we're getting the kids, just three questions that I'd like you to wrestle with in your small groups uh, this week. They're on the back of your bulletin as well. First of all, personal. Has there been a time in your life where scripture was misused either by yourself or someone else to make you feel excluded? How would Paul's example of using proper interpretive tools have refuted this? I remember one time when I was still a teenager, I read that scripture about where Jacob or Esau, for a morsel of meat, sold his birthright. Does any of you remember that scripture? For one morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. Then what does it say happened to him? He tried to find a place of repentance and he couldn't find it. Did you know that the enemy just whacked me over the head with that for months? Because I thought of all the sins I've done. I thought of all the mistakes that I had made. And if, Jake, if Esau couldn't find repentance, how can I? And the only way that I could get out of that lie, that law that was over my head, was I had to see afresh the heart of God. I had to see my father. I had to enter into a fresh partnership with my father. And see, that wasn't his heart for me. Even though the black and white text of scripture said, yes, Esau did that, but there's no repentance for him. I had to go beyond the letter of the law, the fine print, and hear the heart of God. And some of you need to hear God's heart today for you. Afresh, you need to get beyond that guardian that's severe and strict and, and has put restrictions on you and imposed them on you. And hear afresh the Father's heart for you today. Yes. Secondly, community. Paul gives three divisions of that time that were broken down through the good news of God's radical embrace. Male and female. Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. What are the divisions that the good news is breaking down in our time? Discuss the tensions of doing so, because I'll tell you what, it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be easy. I really believe this is a time when God is wanting to include the gay and lesbian and transgendered community as part of the church. But there's tensions there. There's struggles. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? How is that lived out in community when we have all of these scriptures that say this, this, and this? What do we do with that? Well, let me tell you, it's not going to be easy. But God says, are you mature enough as a church? Are you now huos or are you still technon with a bunch of rules being told what to do? And finally, culture. Discuss how the church addresses issues that came up in question two, positive and negative, and its impact on the culture that we're living in. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come today. 
And would you show us what it means to be freed from the guardian, freed from the, that s- slave that is so severe and strict and rule-oriented and performance-oriented, and bringing us into a relationship with the Father, a fresh understanding of the Father's heart, a fresh understanding of who we are, whether men or women, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Father, may we respond to your invitation. May we respond to your invitation to mature sonship, heirs of the Father. To be joint heirs with Christ. To literally be be in the same place as you. That's your invitation to us today. So as we have communion today. Welcome back kids. So good to see you. How was kids church? Right on. Right on. I am not surprised. Today I want as we have communion. And we've all done this together before. But in our teaching, we've been hearing that by, by doing this, it breaks a spell. Has anybody ever been under a spell? Yeah? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Because you're not really there. You're not really acting according to who you, you are. It's a bit like hypnotism. Or, or maybe if the dentist shoots you with a, with a freeze and you, your, brain, your brain goes funny. I once had my wisdom tooth out and they gave me a general anesthetic, they said, but I was awake the whole time. But I wasn't quite myself. I wasn't quite there. And there's a spell that the devil wants to put on us and the spell is, if I'm good enough, God will love me. And if I'm bad, God doesn't love me anymore. And I got to somehow reach a certain performance or standard to be accepted. Now, we all want to do well. Whatever we do, whether it's school or business or work or parenting or doing our chores, we want to do well. But that is not the basis for God's love for us. That is not the basis for us being his kids. When I first set eyes on my grandson for the very first time, I was so completely, totally in love. You talk about a spell. And he does good, and he's working on his math, and I'm now his Facebook or his Google Hangout friend, and all this stuff. But it's not dependent on how good he's done, or how bad he's done, or how how good I've been. It's relationship. It's a friendship. So that's what I want us to remember as we have communion today: is that our basis for friendship with God is what Jesus has already done for us on the cross, and that breaks that spell that so often comes over us. It tells us that there's. Somehow, a different basis for being loved by God. It's unconditional and it's eternal because of what Jesus has done for us. So, Rick, come and give us any practical explanations we need, and then we're going to bless.